This is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. I grew up in an AFL environment. When I, when I defected to start playing soccer as a kid, that was a, that was a major issue, you know. That was my coming out experience, if I can say that. You know, that was, that was something you don't do. It might not surprise you to hear that soccer is the most played team sport in Australia. I know that what we play isn't always what we watch. But still, in 2021, Football Australia reported just under $38 million in broadcast revenue. AFL... 738 million. It's not like soccer isn't watchable. If we play it with such love, why doesn't that translate to our screens? This is The Long Haul, and I'm Emma Murray. Today, we're looking at the culture of soccer, or football, in our country. You know, you have to spend a lot of time in this country trying to explain soccer to people, trying to apologise for soccer try and link it to the broader cultural reality of Australia, um, all the while realising that it's been there the whole time anyway. I'm Andy Harper. I have spent a lifetime in um, football, soccer football. And you actually did a PhD on soccer, is that mm. right? Yeah. What led you to doing that? You know, I've spent, count like, like a lot of my colleagues, who, who live in the game and work in the game and, and desire for the game, you, do, you spend enormous amounts of emotional energy getting frustrated with well, the game's self-imposed problems, but also those situations that are thrust upon the game through no fault of its own. And I, I guess the first person who really started that for me was the late Johnny Warren, when he said, um, uh, the only countries in the world and there's only a few of them which have resisted football, soccer, a former British colonies, which is bizarre because soccer is the sport of the British. And he was talking about Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand, white South Africa. Um, yeah. And that sat with me for a number of years. Um, and so it got to the point in my dotage where I thought, you know, I've got to, I actually need to scratch this itch now. And so he started to research the history of Australian soccer to understand why it's not thriving. In a few seconds, we'll be looking back to the origins of soccer in Australia. Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. The football games all came out of England. All these different the English public schools, Harrow, Eton, uh, Winchester, they all had their own forms of football. With the processes of the Industrial Revolution, uh, industrial cities being built in England, train lines connecting towns, these schools growing, middle classes growing, the challenge came for these schools, which were isolated, 
to start playing each other in these games. But they couldn't do that because they played to different rules. So the English FA Cup, which is now we, we watch and we celebrate, Association Football, as it was called, came up with its list of agreed rules with all the schools, 1863 that was. And that was the English Challenge Cup, became the Football Association Cup. We still celebrate it today. The problem with soccer was that it left the middle classes and reached down into the working classes. And then that became even more, more problematic when elements of the working class started getting paid to play the game. And it came head on against the amateur ethos. For the first 20 years of that competition, it was the old boys and the private schools, Eton, et cetera, that won the competition every year. 1883, Eton lost against Blackburn Olympic, I think it was, in the, which was a, an industrial team of workers. And boys, schools and, and, and teams from the middle class never won the FA Cup again. That was then the movement of the, of the upper middle class towards rugby union. At the same time that soccer was becoming the working class sport, the British class structure was being reinforced in Australia. And so was the idea that soccer was not for the elite. When you're the Brits and you, and you stroll in uninvited to a, the landmass called Australia, and you need to set up what you perceive to be your new society, it was almost like the, the British Home Office says, this is, this is the way things are going to be. And there's a very important piece of this puzzle. And it was a book called Tom Brown's School Days. You might have heard of it. And it was published in 1850. And it was written by the headmaster of the rugby school, which is where rugby union football comes from. And th this became such a popular book. It almost became like a manual for how to set up and run a private school. And, and so the schools in Melbourne, Melbourne Grammar, Scots College, etc., the whole of that cohort were influenced by this colonial mentality, what sports to play, what games make proper British people. It was very easy to put it in the, in the list of sports, which are just not what we do here. Soccer, soccer didn't make an appearance apart from clandestine movements from, by, by really keen and desperate parents in the Sydney GPS until 1985. 100 years of the power base, the politicians, the lawyers, the accountants, the architects, and what's their allegiance? What have they been fed? I might lose listeners at this point. They might think this guy's just barking mad. But I think if you pe peel back all this stuff, our, our identity as Australians remains so steadfastly enmeshed with British nationalism and British colonialism, it's gonna take something special to start shaking that tree so that we start developing our own identity, seriously, our own identity, what it means to be Australian. And you know, none of the incumbent sports can do that because they're all beneficiaries of that colonial power base. What confused me here was AFL. I get that cricket's British, that rugby's British, but AFL? Isn't that about as Australian as you can get? The people establishing the football game in, in Melbourne, they weren't doing it to be Australian. They were doing it to be British. It was about showing how British you were. Now, 120 years later, the AFL PR machine sort of spins us back and says, this was always about Australian identity and Australian. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was Melbournians showing how British they are. 
I interviewed former Prime Minister John Howard for my PhD. He was fantastic, actually. He said to me that the first 30 to 45 minutes of every cabinet meeting, cabinet meeting on a Monday in Canberra, this is a thing that runs the country. 30 to 45 minutes had to be devoted Monday morning to people squabbling about their footy teams, their Aussie rules teams. The referee did this, the referee do that. It was just so dominant in the Aussie rules states that that's all these people wanted to talk about and had to get the weekend's games out of their system. Now that's very powerful. If you go to pretty much any grassroots soccer game in Australia today, you'll see the full community represented on the field in a way we don't with the other codes. It may have come from Britain, but today, soccer is the world game. Here in Australia, that cultural diversity really started to show on the field when we saw massive immigration from Europe after World War II. For the power establishment in Australia, and that mentality that soccer is just not what we do here, it doesn't belong. The arrival of non-Anglo migrants en masse from the 1950s on served to reinforce that notion. We're actually seeing and living the otherness of soccer now in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. This is now no longer some ethereal colonial concept, we just don't play soccer. We're actually seeing it, there's different people play it. These aren't real Australians. Clubs started up around the country based on the cultural heritage of new migrant communities. Marconi, Sydney, Croatia, Melbourne, Croatia, South Melbourne, Hellas. I grew up with the sport. I played the sport and I now administer the sport as well. Well, my name is Bill Papastergiatis and I wear a number of hats when it comes to football. One hat is through you know, the strong relationship that the Greek community has with football in this state and generally within Australia. And I'm the president of arguably the largest Greek community outside of Greece, and that's the Greek community of Melbourne. I'm also the chair of South Melbourne Football Club, also known as South Melbourne Hellas, which was awarded by FIFA the title of the Oceania Club of the Century alongside Real Madrid, which won the equivalent title for Europe for the last century. Um, coming to a strange land for many migrants, um, to strange cultures, um, cultures they didn't readily identif identify with in terms of whether it was going to a pub that was foreign to most Europeans, um, that is continental Europeans. And so meeting places for them were clubs. You understand that Melbourne alone has over 50 football clubs of Greek heritage. Every weekend, we would all be dragged there and it was a family experience. So it wasn't your father coming, but my mum went to the game with all my aunties. Greek cuisine was sold at the game. Coffee was sold. And you didn't see people drinking beer there. It was coffee. It was something for all of us to celebrate communally. Um, win, lose, or draw. Geez, the passion was strong. The passion was strong. The clubs weren't only Greek. There are more than 30 Italian heritage soccer clubs and another 30 Croatian clubs around the country. One of Australia's most famous soccer voices, 
the 40th captain of the Socceroos, Craig Foster, started his professional career at Sydney, Croatia. It was a, a tremendous culture shock walking out of Lismore, northern New South Wales country area as a white, Anglo, young, you know, 17-year-old Australian. And to walk into Sydney, Croatia, to see this uh, incredibly rich, uh, passionate and diverse culture uh, coalesce around the football club was really quite extraordinary. It was mind-blowing. You know, it was a mini Croatia and it gave them a, a sense of belonging, a sense of togetherness uh, as, and a sense of incredible pride. So when Sydney Croatia was winning titles, the Australian Croatian community was feeling validated. You might have seen the work Craig's done advocating for new migrants and refugees. He also sits on the Multicultural Council of Australia. He attributes his passion for multiculturalism and equality to his time playing soccer. Andy Harper was also influenced by his early experiences in the game. It was, it was totally foreign to start with, like, wow. Um, you know, my first team was Sydney City, which was um, a, a, from the Jewish community. Um, and, uh, you know, what an education, but just the whole difference of life. And then, and then appreciating the passions, just some of the most life-affirming moments that I can recall. Did racism exist back then? Absolutely, it did. Was it a, was it a safe port for them? 1,000%. And over a period of time, it allowed their identity to become part of the development of our national identity through football. Because South Melbourne Hellas became a catch cry nationally, internationally. My name is Jade North. I'm uh, a proud Birupai man from northern New South Wales in Taree. Um, even though I've been living in Queensland half of my life. Um, yeah, I started playing soccer at the age of um, seven years old for Taree Rangers. And then when I got to the age of 16, that's when I sort of first cracked my first NSL, the old A-League um, first contract. Um, I ended up having a 21-year professional um, football career, soccer career. So been to two Olympic Games and represented the Socceroos 41 times. As well as non-culturally based teams like Perth and Brisbane, Jade played at the Greek-based Sydney Olympic from 2001 to 2003. They used to come down to training, you know, and they'd be right there high-fiving you and there'd be 10 to 15 other guys that are in that the support group every week, week in, week out. And they'd just be there encouraging you and they'd love to talk to you after the game and invite you to lunch or invite you here and... And they were just they, they were just soccer mad. Like we didn't have that in Perth, you know. That was that's the difference. It was more like a family, if you know what I mean. Outside of football, they made you feel more like a family. Like the the fans, I guess. <laughs> when we did play against the you know the, the rivals of um, South Melbourne, which was another Greek team, and that was they were special games because there was so much in it because there was so much pride and passion and. And the will to win that game was always, didn't matter who we played, we just, as long as we beat South Melbourne. That passion that was brought to the game pulled in spectators, but it also attracted some bad attention. 
Soccer gained a reputation for hooliganism, for roughness at matches. There was no doubt a perception that national rivalries were brought into the stadium. I, uh, myself, went to hundreds of matches. I saw very little violence, if at all. Um, were there the occasional episodes of passion overflowing and as a result of losing, expressing itself in the way that people did, given that was their lived experience on the continent where there were, you know, um, still immediate experiences from the Second World War. So did they experience that loss and then um, project it in a nationalistic way? I'm sure they did. Um, how often did that happen? Not often. Was the media particularly focused on it? Absolutely. And it led, in my humble opinion, to the unfortunate result of the National Soccer League being disbanded by the federal government. So you took out of football what is its inherent element, which is striving for excellence and winning. The final National Soccer League match was played in 2004 and it was replaced in 2005 with the A-League. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name's Brendan Schwab and at that time, I was the chief executive of what's now Professional Footballers Australia, then the Professional Footballers Association. And we um, really played a leadership role in um, developing and designing and researching the business case uh, for a new fully professional men's competition um, in Australian football. By the start of the new century, many of the vibrant, energetic football clubs that had been formed in the 1950s were starting to wane. There was at least as much interest in, in, in soccer as there was in the other major um, professional codes, be it AFL or, or, or rugby league. But of course, the economies and, 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 and the quality of the governance and, 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 and the, the impact of the businesses of, of those leagues uh, was incomparable with the fact that Australian soccer continued to really live a, a hand-to-mouth um, existence. It didn't not work because it was ethnic, which was the common catch cry. It ended up not working because it was run badly. And it's got, running something badly has got nothing to do with your ethnicity. It's got everything to do with your vision and your capacity. To the end where the NSL was significantly undercapitalized, it just didn't have the money to do what was needed to be done and no one from the outside was prepared to help because they are of that mentality that these people are just incoherent, degenerate, probably criminal, and why would we want to get involved in them? Really bad broad brushing, but very powerful nevertheless. These clubs that we respected enormously, which had been built by the migrant com communities after the Second World War, were, um, you know, they, they were receiving the last rights. Clubs such as West Adelaide, Adelaide City, um, Sydney United, um, um, and many others, Newcastle United, 
uh, these clubs were all involved in um, deeds of voluntary uh, administration. You know, unfortunately, the National Soccer League was at a stage where it was effectively bankrupt. As with now, soccer participation levels were higher than any other team sport. And people were also watching the game internationally. If we looked at the television ratings that, for example, the Socceroos would um, achieve when they played a big World Cup qualifier, such as the 97 game against Iran or the uh, 2000 opening match against Italy for the Olympic Games, the ratings for these games were as big as an AFL grand final or, 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 or a state of origin game. So we had this mass level of interest. What was absent was the capacity of the National Soccer League as it then was to convert that enormous interest in the game into interest in the local game. So the PFA, where Brendan was chief executive, invested half a million dollars into research to work out how best to translate our love for soccer into the Australian National League. The answer to that research was, yes, we can make this competition work, but we need to do so under um, very clear conditions. While the research did find they had to refresh the league, it also set up five pillars to underpin a new structure. And that was built firstly on a concept of quality, that the fan had to perceive this competition of being of high quality. The second pillar was that there needed to be a vibrant atmosphere at live matches. That would mean that an Australian soccer fan has to attend. They can't just get that from watching, for example, European football on television. This is something about actually being there um, in the stadium. The third pillar was visibility. Of course, the new league would need to be marketed well, so fans knew it was there. Um, and there were two other pillars, which I think is where the A-League has really started to struggle. Community and, 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 the, and the final element was, was what we called local club brands. That if we think of all the great sports competitions around the world, they're famous for their clubs. If we think of Major League Baseball, we think of the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox. If we think of European football, we think of Juventus or Manchester United or uh, Barcelona. But when we think of Australian football, we're not thinking about clubs. And in order to build that, we had to have a very strong community element. Uh, we had to connect the grassroots to these clubs. I believe there was a need for a shift, um, but I think the shift um, was basically you threw out the baby with the bathwater. You disentitled the clubs that had a historical role in the development and were the foundation of football in this, club, in this country. We um, created a fictitious sense of franchise football, which for a period of time, was new and fresh and exciting and captivated everyone's interest. But the, the exact state that is alleged football was then is almost the state which it is now. So that's interesting because if you speak to senior administrators in football, they will tell you that seven or eight clubs at the moment are struggling significantly financially. Remember that FIFA has named South Melbourne their Oceanic Club of the Century. Not all of the NSL clubs were floundering in 2004. So why didn't those strong clubs join the new league? We'll find out in a moment. The, the big NSL clubs had the chance. I was at one, Marconi. And I, I just remember 
it being said by one of the leaders of the club, um, yeah, we could we could really put the foot down and go for it. But who's going to come with us? And so at that point, at that moment, the decision was to stay mediocre. Keep it small. Keep it ours. Don't spook people. Let's just, let's just move along and keep our little thing because it's serving us quite nicely. And my great lament is that a lot of these clubs didn't choose to do that because I think the A-League would just look fantastic if it had these clubs, many of whom you know, trace their origins to the 1950s, hack through. Those stories are now lost to the A-League um, for the time being, at least, unless something changes. And I find it really sad. The reality is that joining the A-League would have come at a big cost for these teams and their communities. None of these clubs could have any connection to the history of the game. That the community of Croatia, uh, Australians, the Greek Australian community, the Italian community, Australia, could not even be recognised in the new club insignia, could not play a part. They, uh, they couldn't be acknowledged as part of the history of the game. They had to be completely excommunicated in order to sell this new vision of an Australia where multiculturalism means no historic identity. Interestingly, the man who coordinated this shift away from cultural clubs was a European immigrant himself. Frank Lowy was born in Hungary and had been involved in the soccer league since the 1970s. So Frank Lowy's view of multiculturalism as it related to football was we're all just Australian. When people say, oh, I don't see colour, I don't see race, I don't see ethnicity, we're all just Australian. But what that does is that denies the right of people to speak their own language, to respect their own history. And in my view, that's not true multiculturalism. It's very far from it. So it's understandable, but it's sad that uh, Frank Lowy decided that every club has to be uh, ochre. And much of the broader media in Australia very much supported that, as it, particularly um, the kind of the conservative media. They were very thrilled by that because now football was formerly called soccer. Uh, now football could become acceptable to them. The, the, the phrase old soccer was a, was a repugnant phrase, uh, and it still is, because the people that coined that phrase celebrated Australia qualifying for the round of 16 at the 2006 FIFA World Cup with a team of first-generation migrants from, from the very clubs, which we're now being told that they're part of the the history of the game. And they weren't just being told they're part of the history, they were being condemned uh, to, to the dustbins. Yet the players, you know, when we have that famous game to qualify for the round of 16 against Croatia, uh, that is multicultural Australia at its best. And in fact, uh, we had Australian-born players in the Croatian team, like Josip Simonic and, and Ante Seric. That was something we had to build upon and not condemn. You know, these clubs have reimagined themselves to make sure they're relevant and appropriate for the diversity in this city and country. So they're now mirrors of the cities they live in. South Melbourne has had women's teams since the late 70s. They have all abilities teams, 
They have a vision impaired team and almost every culture in the community is represented on the field. They are from every background. So it's an African kid, a Chilean kid, um, meaning of background, um, Hellenic, Italian, Croatian. They're all together, they're all speaking the same language on the football field. And it's fascinating to hear them talk to one another using some of their own expressions from their own cultural backgrounds in that discourse and depending upon which club they play for, chanting a national song for that particular club because of their historical roots. And you'll have African kids chanting a Hellenic song, which you might say, well, that's interesting. But it's also great because we're also exposing one another to our different backgrounds. Uh, I've been living overseas now for six years and when I come back and I go to AFL or cricket events, I'm just reminded about how male and how white um, they are. I don't feel that way when I go to Australian soccer events. I feel uh, much more um, at home. While we're talking about how multicultural the game is, it's important to say that one community is underrepresented on our soccer fields. There are highly celebrated First Nations soccer players. Think Lydia Williams, John Moriarty, and of course, Jade North. But unlike the AFL and NRL, we don't see strong numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players. Football Australia is facing this issue now with a new Indigenous advisory board. Jade is a first co-chair. Um, I think the cost of it is, um, is a big factor. Um, my boys, my, I've got three boys and um, two of them have played rugby league for the local Carina Tigers just down the road here in Brisbane. And the fees are like the third of the price. And, um, you know, you get a Broncos season ticket, you get all the bells and whistles. Um, and I think the, NFL, uh, the NRL and the AFL, they've been around for a lot longer you know, within that Indigenous engagement and you know they do they do a great job and um, I know that we us us as a as a code we we, we can catch up and, and close the gap you know we we have a big um, sporting culture in Australia but I know there's a big sleeping giant in football. When you were playing, was was there a sense for you that you had a responsibility to your the Indigenous communities and the Indigenous kids to um, be a role model in that space. Yeah, for me, it wasn't until probably 19, until I started winning and doing quite well for my club, that I was proud to really, you know, come out and and before that, because and I have to say that, you know, as you know, because I'd separated from my indigenous side of things when I was younger, and you know, for me growing up, Australia wasn't, um, you know, in some areas it was it was it was hard because you always felt embarrassed to be indigenous you know because you'd hear some certain remarks at school or you know or out and about somewhere and it was really um, and you didn't want to deal with that sort of stuff and you know fitting in that's why that's why I love playing sport because sport sort of um, you were just as one you weren't anywhere anyone different you were always just part of the team and I guess that's what the emptiness that I that when I was growing up that I missed and that's why I played sport and um and then started when I started doing well, that's when I wanted to be that, you know what, I'm going to be proud of who I am and, and where I'm from because I shouldn't have to 
be embarrassed of you know my culture and who I am and, and all that sort of stuff and and I just said that from now on it's it's all about you know wanting to give back and and make younger boys and girls look up to people that are that are paving the way for indigenous you know and and, and really set the platform and you've now taken on a role with the indigenous advisory group now why do you think we're now sort of shifting into the importance of getting indigenous kids to play soccer um i think with the because we've got the sort of right leadership that's it that's currently in play at the moment you know people that that are up the top that actually that care and want to make change i know people have been wanting to happen for a long time but for me it was always like um always in the too hard basket if you know what i mean um but you know to, to see um the passion and and it's always been there, but now we've, we've got a vehicle to actually, and a platform to actually have a voice at the table now, so, which is really exciting. How are we tracking as a society when it comes to inclusion and diversity? Have we improved since the early 2000s when we thought inclusion meant uniformity? Multiculturalism is always complex and I give you just like racism. And true multiculturalism is not just diversity and meaning and and nor is it even inclusion. Australia has come some distance in that. Real multiculturalism is an active dynamic concept which means support for each other intra communities and broadly and it, and ultimately uh, what it means is a lack of barriers. It means equality between all ethnicities. And we are nowhere near that. And what role do you think soccer can play in supporting these different cultures that exist in our society? The power of football is such that the game itself understands the racism and prejudice that all of our immigrant communities have faced because we faced it through their eyes. Football has to tell its own story well. And the problem that the game has is because it was attacked over a very, very long period of time, that it's very insecure, the game of football. And so it's always worried about offending people. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't want to relive those times. And I think that's sad. I would prefer that football was uh, very proud of our multiculturalism uh, in in all of its complexities. And today people like to say that we're one of the most successful multicultural societies in the world. I think we are. Um, Football has a massive part to play in all of these communities coming to actually feel that they belong in Australia. So football has to be proud of its story, um, warts and all. Soccer is the one sport that can break the colonial shibboleths. Now I'm not saying we're racist or sexist or anythingist because we're former British colonials, but, but, I, but I think it lingers. I really think it lingers. And our, 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 our fear as a, as, a, as a country and as a community to, to tear some bad things down and rebuild, we just don't do it. You know, we, 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 we're Australians are really conservative people, despite the national mythology, we're really conservative people. We're very comfortable en masse, very comfortable in our life, Inside that tent are Aussie rules, rugby league, cricket, rowing, Olympic sports. Outside that tent is the soccer crowd. And there's a lot of sexism, a lot of racism in the soccer community. I'm not saying it's the panacea for Australia because 
it of itself is perfect, far from it. But the value of soccer is that if it can be, if it can seriously become part of the whole, it by definition has started to disrupt those colonial pillars. This is important for Australia, really important for Australia, not just for soccer's sake. Disruption may lead to positive change, but it also comes at a cost. And soccer has paid a cost for its culture. Somehow the game was seen as a threat to Australia as it then was. And if you want any evidence perhaps of systemic racism, then that is it. Because that's all you need to know is if those in power are worried about you um, speaking truth to them, then that indicates that there is definitely systemic discrimination. And there's absolutely no doubt that Australian football um, has been the victim of that for a very long period of time, as have the many, many communities that made up Australian football in terms of their daily lives. Um, And so we need to put the games uh, struggle in the context of the individual and the community struggles that, that, that have dealt with that. Uh, but the game has prevailed. I think the cause of multiculturalism is, 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 is prevailing and it's going to become more uh, embracing. I believe so. I think there's been a profound shift from assimilation as a form of multiculturalism to an acceptance and understanding and supporting cultural differences that add value to the fabric of our society. And I believe I'm seeing that at all levels, um, whether it's in business, in commerce, in sport, um, at a community level, uh, in terms of the way we acknowledge one another, uh, in terms of understanding one another. And as for the future of the A-League, there are changes coming. Up next, we'll find out what they could be. And so you go and you do your PhD and you, you know, you're curious about and frustrated by some of the things that people are saying about a game you love. What, what have you come away with? An answer or a solution? Well, there's no, there's no easy solution. I don't think the clock's going to stop on soccer. It's a matter of how fast it happens. And it's only going to happen faster than we want if smart people make smart decisions. And the jury's always out on that. There seems to be, listening to you today, there seems to be a disconnect between all the people that play who obviously love it and the people that actually run the sport. It's it's true. The significant challenge for the game, which is not going to be overcome anytime soon, is that if you're a fan of the game, and there are about 8 million of them, they reckon, latest research, but they're not all united under the one competition. You see, if you grow up loving Aussie rules, what Aussie rules competition do you watch? The one Aussie rules competition. The one Aussie rules competition there is. If you grow up loving rugby league, what rugby league competition do you watch? The one the national rugby the league. Na- There's only NRL. one Yeah, yeah. But if there are eight million soccer fans in Australia mm. and four million of them love the English Premier League, one million love the Italian League, there are the South American diaspora who love their own clubs back in their own country. And then you've got the A-League. It's, it's really difficult 
to harness 8 million fans under one Australian competition. Mm. Gets very it, diluted, doesn't it? Totally diluted. Yeah. Totally diluted. And this, this is, you don't even say that as a gripe, that's just the reality. And it's, yeah. it's just going to be incremental. You've got to be smart, what you present to people, how you link with certain things, bringing the majority of that fan base, sport fan base, under your umbrella competition. That's a slower burn. I think people are up for it and they can see the benefits it's going to derive and that's why people are investing in the game still. So what is the future of the A-League? What is changing? For a start, teams no longer have to shed cultural references to apply to join the A-League and the old NSL clubs hope that they may be able to be part of the national competition. Well, we're told by Football Australia that in 2023, we should have a second division up and running. We're told soon thereafter there will be promotion and relegation. If you've watched Ted Lasso, you might have seen the energy that comes with promotion and relegation. Basically, it means that teams move between the first and second divisions, depending on their standing. It's a huge bone of contention with football people in Australia, but then how do, how do we afford promotion and relegation? If you're an owner of one of these A-League licenses, which is costing you, you know, $10 million to buy, and then, you know, it's costing you at least $10 million a year to run, then with the, with the huge demand from fans to invest in youth academies and facilities and stadiums, really, who, who's going to put that sort of money on the line with the threat of coming last and getting kicked out? Like Melbourne Victory came last last year came last. What would the A-League look like without Melbourne victory? Now, some people would say, well, that's just the cut and thrust. I can't describe to you the emotion of it, of being at a game where you're fighting to avoid relegation. It's And the result at the end of the game, assuming you win and you avoid it, is equivalent to winning a title. It's passion. And we're one of two countries globally that doesn't have promotion relegation. It's like playing baseball and not being allowed to hit a home run. So you're taking out the aspiration out of football. And that's what we all dream for. That's what we all live for. Um, we all aspire. And that's where the real errors have been made. You know, they discarded uh, what, I, what I believe were the true custodians of the game. and. You know, football has been the worst for it. You know, South Melbourne would regularly get 20,000 people to games or 15,000. Quite a number of these clubs drew spectacular crowds, equivalent and far better than what we're getting now in the A-League this season, that's for sure. Far, far better. South Melbourne has put bids in to join the A-League when places have come up and they've come close. Bill says that many of those strong South Melbourne supporters are now attached to the Melbourne A-League clubs. But if they get a chance, he says the crowd will come back. Look, at the end of the day, we want to watch football at, at its highest level. And the A-League was great football. There's no doubt about it. It still is. I still believe that the football being played at the A-League is at a very high level. Um, but if they're given a choice of coming home, well, we're building the infrastructure for people to come home. So I'm confident that a new era is upon us and I'm excited.
We checked in with Football Australia about the future plans Bill raised there. They say a second division has been earmarked for some time in 2023. They haven't committed to promotion and relegation at this stage. They told us that access to the A-League will be determined at a later point. Whatever happens though, soccer will keep bringing our communities together every Saturday morning with our coffees and our camp chairs, watching our kids give the game their all. Next on The Long Haul, it's infiltrated every sporting code we have. Sports betting. With the help of AFL star Josh Bruce, Emma takes us inside the world of sports betting to learn why so many young players are drawn to it. Researchers Matthew Stevens and Tanya Fletcher help tackle the complex and confronting reality of the new normal in sport. The Long Haul is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. Our host is Emma Murray. This episode was produced by me, Liz Keane, and Simon Portis, and editing on this one was by me. Our theme music was by Kenneth Lample. Special thanks to Andy Harper, Brendan Schwab, Craig Foster, and Bill Papasturgiatis. <laughs>